0: is my side hustle the podcast. I am here with Chrissy Kelly. She's the founder of Absent, a UK registered charity that supports people who have experienced smell loss. Chrissy has been connecting people who lost their sense of smell after her own experience of post-viral smell loss in 2012 absent became a reality in 2019 and with the pandemic the membership has grown to 60,000 plus across multiple social platforms. The charity has launched her into a late life career in academic research and she is a research associate at the University of Reading and a research fellow at the Institute of Advanced Study University of London. She's developed an app to assist people in a technique called smell training. Chrissy, thank you so much for being here. I am so excited to talk with you today, partly because the work you are doing is so fascinating and specific. So thank you for joining us at Grief is My Side
1: Hustle. Thank you for having me, Megan. This is a great great pleasure for me to be here with you today.
0: Terrific. I would love for you to just deepen into the conversation. Give us a little bit more about Absent and where it came from and your
1: personal experience with smell loss. Okay. So Absent, as we've just heard in the bio, became a charity in 2019. I had lost my sense of smell in 2012. I found it a very, very destabilizing experience. I was without a functional sense of smell. So really I got no information from my nose for about two years you know, a few sort of signals here and there, which didn't really make much sense to me, a lot of distorted odors, things like that. So that were, those were like the wilderness years for me. And because I didn't really know very much about smell loss, and it's an invisible thing that most people don't take seriously, or they didn't at that time. And for that reason, I just sort of suffered in silence. I was eventually did sort of come out of myself enough to take an interest in what goes on when you lose your sense of smell. And bit by bit, started to read about the the research that was going on. I had the great good fortune to meet Professor Thomas Hummel, who is a leader, one of the leaders in the field of olfactory dysfunction. He's in Germany. And I met him and he very kindly invited me to attend one of his smell dysfunction courses. So it's usually ENTs that attend these courses, but there there are always a handful of people there who are say perfumers or uh, working in industry in some way. And then there was little old me because I was just really, really interested. So that all started in 2014. And in 2015, I really wanted to take the information that I learned especially about a technique called smell training and help other people understand that. So what you have to understand is that in the first paper ever about smell training was written in 2009. And so when I heard about it, it was only, that paper was only four years. There were no instructions in that paper. The paper just simply stated, we, we asked these patients to use these four different odors. They were given vials of odor to sniff twice a day and to do that for four months. But beyond that, there were no instructions. So being the kind of person that I am, I thought, well, I want to, first of all, I want to know where I'm starting from and I want to do the best that I can. I'm going to keep a diary and see what works for me and what doesn't work for me. So that was kind of my initiation into smell training. And eventually I thought, well, I'll take what I know and I'll put it onto a very simple website, which I built myself. And I also started a Facebook group because even though there were Facebook groups for people who had lost their sense of smell, I felt that the tone uh, was just not what I was looking for. So there were a lot of kind of cowboy remedies. The there were a lot of trolls. It was just not a very friendly kind of atmosphere. And so I started a a small Facebook group called Smell Training in 2015. And I can remember when I had 100 members, I thought, oh, well, I've arrived. And then over the years, we had absolutely steady growth, 1% per week. I mean, I remember looking at the line going up and I thought, oh, that's really good. You know, we're, we're really we're really getting traction. And so when we, my friend Miriam Block, mm. she said to me in 2016, all right, enough of you fiddling around with a Facebook group. It's time to make yourself legitimate. So let's start a charity. So she was my partner in that, thank goodness. She was my number one cheerleader, and I would never have done it without her. So you may see me before you today, but actually behind me is Miriam Block, And we finally achieved registered status in England and Wales in May of 2019.
0: Congratulations. Amazing. Thank you. It was a long road,
1: Um, but in that time, we built an amazing website with the help of our web designers. I had this concept for a smell training app, which we actually brought to fruition. At that time, it was a web-based app and it still exists. It's a free web-based app. That anyone can use, but at at this time we're actually in the process of turning it into a freestanding app, which we hope will be used for research. So we've got some research partners for that kind of lined up. And there we were in 2019, all was going well, and we had our official launch on February 27th, 2020. That's Anosmia Awareness Day, and I can remember reading in the newspaper that oh, this pandemic is coming, and that week, I had had a couple of people contact me on Twitter, one man from Iran, one doctor from Italy who was working on the front line, and I thought to myself, oh, that doesn't sound very good. I, I certainly hope that smell loss is not going to be part of this new virus. We had 1,500 members in our Facebook group on February 27th, 2020. And today we have 60,000 people across all platforms. Now that doesn't, that's, that is Facebook, but that's also to add to that. We have the, on the Mighty Network, which you may have heard of. Mm -hmm. We have the Absent Network. So we've got some people there. We have people on Twitter. We have a whole community that uses our Facebook, that uses the website, but does not use Facebook. So we are now serving a lot of people all over the world. So that's, that's big. And, you know, it's almost as though we didn't really understand smell loss until we had all these people turning up at once. It was almost as though we didn't know very much about smell loss until the pandemic arrived. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. Okay. In the original Facebook group, which was just called Absent, Absent Anosmia Support, people might find us three months in four months into their smell loss sometimes years later and by the time they got into the group the initial anxiety of losing their sense of smell had passed so they were already into a kind of secondary phase and i've actually made a diagram of the phases that i think people go through when they lose their sense of smell and now though with everybody knowing that smell loss is part of the pandemic And everybody knowing that it's called anosmia, they are finding the Facebook group within a day. So what we're seeing is the first flush of anxiety over losing the sense of smell. And then we get to watch in real time this journey through the grief of smell loss and it's becoming a really interesting one. Until now, the focus has always been on rhinologists to help solve this problem. If For anybody in the audience who has lost their sense of smell and been to see a doctor, they will know that there are really very few interventions available. There are some things that can be done to help improve things, but truly, a cure, we just can't ever talk about a cure. Maybe someday, but certainly, certainly not right now and therefore looking to rhinologists becomes a very frustrating uh, thing for a patient to do. So we are listeners and observers in absent. Meanwhile, I have employees, that's wonderful, that's uh, made my life much more easy. I've got other research colleagues that work with me who are using the Facebook groups and we've got multiple groups now. So we have the original group, we have the COVID-19 group, we have a parosmia and phantosmia group, and for anyone listening who doesn't know what those two things are, parosmia is uh, the distortion of smells that can happen as a result of nerve damage, or damage to the olfactory nerve, and this can make some really common foods that would include coffee, onions, meat meat frying, meat roasting in particular, peanuts, sometimes minty things, toothpaste frequently, makes those things really foul and sometimes like sewage or like rotting flesh. It would be difficult to summon up enough words to explain to you just how awful this can be for people because you have to imagine it's 24 seven. You wake up in the night, what you smell is rotting meat your partner's breath, the person that you go to for a hug, stinks to high heaven to you. Mm-hmm. It is it is a terrible, terrible thing to live with. And we have many people in the group who are really literally at their wits end. So as we've been, you know, I mean, this has been, to say it's been a learning curve for me is just a huge understatement. There I was, you know, Joining in every conversation that came up on Facebook. You know, those were the old days where I sort of knew everybody, knew everyone's backstory, you know, how they lost their sense of smell. Now, of course, way too many people can't do that anymore. As we understand more about the needs of people, and as I, as a patient advocate, learn more about what it means to be a good patient advocate, I'm seeing now a real need for two other areas of support for these patients who are losing their sense of smell. And before I tell you about those, I want to just briefly um, outline the relationship between olfactory loss and -hmm. depression. Now, this is a very well-established thing and it it works like this. The olfactory bulb is obviously inside the brain. It receives the messages from, from the outside. You have volatile molecules going up into your nose messages are sent into the olfactory bulb. And when you lose your sense of smell, and in this case, the coronavirus is getting into the actual nerve for the unfortunate 5% who are affected for a long time, it gets into the nerve, damage is done to the nerve. And if if the damage is so great that the nerve doesn't come back to life, then messages stop going into the olfactory bulb. And when that happens, like a muscle, you begin to lose volume in that olfactory bulb there is a very well-established relationship between reduced olfactory bulb volume and depression. And that relationship is bi-directional. So people who are clinically depressed, if you imaged their olfactory bulbs, you would also see that there is a reduction in the volume. And if you're wondering how they know If the olfactory bulb has reduced in volume, yes, there are ways that they can check that against the way the the bulb lies. So we know that about olfactory loss. We think about it in terms of depression. As someone who had this myself, for me, it felt like the most profound and private bereavement. Mm. Smell is your most personal self. And without a sense of smell, it's like you're looking in a mirror and not seeing an image of yourself anymore because there's no feedback. You know, we are all creatures living in an environment. And when I am in a room with you or when you are together with your partner, you are breathing the same air. You are experiencing that environment. You are, in fact, taking that environment into your brain. That is what, you know, the olfactory epithelium is actually brain tissue that's exposed to the outside world. So, you know, smell is an extremely privileged sense, as well as being phylogenetically much older than uh, hearing or vision. So going back to where I was in the sort of in the these really difficult two years for me, I felt bereaved Mm. and nobody understood me. You know, my GP said, Oh, well, you know, at least you haven't lost your vision. You know, you'll be fine. It's difficult to communicate to your family. They don't understand that you can eat this brand of bread, but you can't eat that brand of bread because this brand of bread has got something about it that tastes more disgusting than the other one. Uh, These are all things that are so, so personal. And now we have. All of these people, so we are reckoning that 6% of all people who've had COVID 19 will have persisting smell loss that goes on more than two months. And of that group, there will be some who may not recover. So, how do we help these people? And that's when we started with my research, my wonderful research colleagues. And I have to say here up front, you know, I don't have a PhD. I have an MSC in a totally unrelated field, so I don't really have the background to, you know, to do the statistical analysis or anything like that. And I have wonderful research colleagues who have supported me absolutely to the nth degree, who sit with me and look at this Facebook group and we scratch our heads and say, what are we gonna do about this? Because this is really an issue. And we've just completed a survey one year on, in the COVID nineteen Facebook group, and what we found out was something very interesting. So one year on in the COVID nineteen Facebook group, which we had to establish as the pandemic was developing, because suddenly we we had a mushroom, you know, the the number of members in the original Facebook group it just. Gone out of proportion, and all my original group were like, Who are all these noisy people <laughs> talking about COVID 19? So, one night before I went to bed, I thought, You know what? I, I think we need another Facebook group. So, I yeah. quickly I took an image off of Pixabay. I started a new Facebook group. I called it Absent COVID 19 Smell Loss. Went to bed, woke up in the morning, 650 people, oh. you know, everyone was piling in. One year on, We've put a survey out to these people and we know enough about their existing, you know, where they are now in their outcomes and their sort of journey back to recovery. And we asked them, what kind of support did they think they needed?
0: Hmm.
1: And 85% of them, we've got some combined groups. So, but putting them all together, 85% said, I need some kind of emotional support. Absolutely. So, that I think is the really important message that we that absent is now taking to all the people, all the clinicians and researchers that support us and say, Look, we know you're doing your best for therapeutic responses to this problem. But what we really have is a lot of very, very grief stricken people, if I can use that phrase, absolutely who need help. And so here we are. So we, we've got three branches now to the support that we want to offer. They are we clinical support, emotional, uh, mental health support, and support with food. And of course, it goes without saying that three things go along with the peer support that they're already getting from ABSENT. So right now, in writing up the results of this survey, we are going to be approaching the sort of psychology sector, and we want to write an article in a psychology-facing journal to say, this is what's coming. And when people start turning up in your office saying, I lost my sense of smell, and I just feel terrible, that you know what's going on. So that is, that's sort of where we are right now.
0: My head was going a million miles an hour while you were talking. First, just Honoring the experience, which I think lots of our listeners will know, which is something becomes so paramount in your own experience and you don't have the resources that you need. And so you end up growing them, the community and the support that you would want for yourself and it helps serve other people. So there's that part that you described in trauma, we talk a lot about traumatic growth and traumatic growth is where, you know, you go through something terrible, but you end up the more or the better for it so there's something about what you're describing which of course is not to say that we wouldn't want your smell to come back but that it doesn't only end up limiting your experience in life and in grief work it's really hard in early grief to even say that to someone i'm hoping at some point you'll see the you know the the silver lining of this like you would get punched you know that's not that's not what we're trying to describe and yet there is an element in this that you're describing, which is the people who are the ones who are suffering are the ones that are going to give us the information about what they need. The cool thing about, you know, the internet and all that has all of its foibles, but the gift of being able to take in information from people in real time about what their experience is. I mean, you're literally feeding, you know, qualitative information into the field and into the, you know, general understanding of what COVID as a virus is doing. The part that I think I find really relatable, there's an overlay in here just in grief work in general, but there are many, 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 many forms of loss and grieving is what we do as the verb in response to loss. That's the action and it has to happen You know, if you have a five senses experience most of your life, and that grounds you in your understanding of who you are and how you are, and you lose one of those senses, it makes perfect sense to me that that could be as disorienting and need to be grieved in the same way as someone who loses their pet or their mother or their job. And I think the people, what happens to me on my platform is I often, because I came to the platform having lost my mom and dad in quick succession. So my loss primarily was talking about a person loss and an attachment loss to people who meant something to me. There are hundreds of people that read what I'm writing and they didn't have a loving mother and they didn't have a good relationship when their mom died. And so some of what I'm writing is not going to be relatable. And so one of the things I said to you in the beginning is if everybody wrote their stories, we would still need all the other stories. Because the experience feels so minimizing because we don't live it out in the open. And what you're describing is these folks look the same on Tuesday, lose their smell. And on Wednesday, they look the same to the outside world. And the outside world, what, what do they know of it? They know because they had a cold once. They don't really understand. I made a post not so long ago with a vi- about grief and loss with a very quick reference to the fact that I have tinnitus. I, I had ear surgery a while ago and I had tinnitus and I got more responses about the tinnitus than I did. I got more responses from people saying to me, oh my God, I have that too. I have that too. It's really disorienting. It's really difficult. Have you tried these interventions? And, you know, what I took from that was, man, there are a lot of us that are moving through life with a different experience in our hearing. I hear a light hiss all the time, like a, like a static radio is on, which alternately sometimes is really difficult and Other times it is minimized. But the fact that I got so many responses about that, when that wasn't even really what I thought I was writing about, reminds me that we really suffer when something is minimized. We really suffer when we cannot take our experience and make it understandable to the outside world. So when you're talking about the grief and loss work of the experience of losing how you feel in your own body in the world, there's that piece. And then the learning how to acknowledge that for yourself and making that present so that people understand it. So so absence, just the fact of it and that it has 60,000 people in it means a, a significant piece of work has already been done, which is people already feel so much less alone with a symptom that you can't assume that anyone is going to make accommodations
1: for which is just really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I do speak occasionally when I'm being interviewed or when I do like an ask me anything with in one of the patient groups on one of my platforms. I do speak about my own journey, but I'm always a little bit careful about that because I'm just one person and, you know, grieving, you know, my experience is unlike anyone else's and everyone has their own story and no one should hold themselves up to what, to me, and expect the same thing. But you talked about how grief can be a building experience. It certainly changed my life. I have a, a totally different outlook now on things than I did before. It really shook me up, and I had never quite felt so low. And so, coming back from that is is a, a very revitalizing kind of experience. I don't think my sense of smell will ever be what it was before. Yeah. But I think that I derive more joy from my current sense of smell than I ever did from my previous sense of smell. You're so aware of it. Because I'm so aware of it. So when I walk out of the house in the morning and I smell the spring air and the things growing and... And I'm reminded that, you know, a spring day smells different from an autumn day and the morning is different from the evening and, you know, all those kinds of things. I just feel just so alive. I think also that in some ways, this, this move that I made from a world that I used to know to a world that is my present is a bit like emigrating to a totally different country that you've got no relationship with. That's right. And suddenly you wash up on another shore and you are heartbroken with homesickness. Yeah, Absolutely. And you just want that old world. You just mentioned how at the beginning of the grieving process, you don't want to hear anybody say to you, Oh, you'll, you know, you'll get over it and you'll grow and it will be a learning of good. No. I can remember somebody saying to me, oh, well, yeah, you'll learn how to appreciate your food by, you know, changing the texture and balancing the tastes, you know, salty, sweet, sour, bitter, and umami. And I remember thinking, that's not good enough for me. I want my sense of smell back. And interestingly, That is a frequent comment that we get in the Facebook groups. Yeah. When am I going to get 100% of my smell back? The sad truth was that for me, it will never be quite the same. But like moving to that weird foreign country that I'd never heard of, in time, that landscape became beautiful to me. And that food became palatable to me. And it became my new home. And I look back on my previous life in that other world with great fondness in the same way that you might look back on your childhood. You know, it just it's distant to me now, but it remains beautiful in my memory. And I also have worked with and hope to work in the future with a, a wonderful team from Sweden, they their specialty is smell and memory mm. and also smell training. And I do think that, and we haven't really spoken about smell training, but if, for anybody who's listening who has lost their sense of smell, it is the one thing for which we have an evidence base. And it, it can be taught. It's a bit like stroke rehab. So it's something that you do with your brain to establish new neural networks. It takes time, but it can be taught. And it's my experience that through using my mind to go places with my smell memories, that this is an ability that I have improved. Mm. And I am able to conjure up the most extraordinary smell memories from my youth that I would never have been able to do before. So I can imagine a situation and and there, there are a lot of studies on this, you know, why is it that young children, that your strongest smell memory, for instance, of being in your grandmother's kitchen, why is it so strong and why is the smell memory that you might have had when you were 21 is not quite, I can conjure up the smell of my elementary school bathroom sure. and my grandmother's house and other things like that, the inside of the first car I learned how to drive, I know those smells. And that's a talent that can be built. So yeah, I mean, smell is just such a fascinating thing. And I'm sure I wouldn't be here with Absent if I wasn't just fascinated with smell. In trauma, we talk about
0: smell because the the brain codes everything in your memory differently in a traumatized situation when you're When your central nervous system is overwhelmed you code everything and so one of the ways that people can get triggered into reliving in their five senses a terrible thing that happened to them the quickest is smell because it is so associated with memory now, the other side of that coin is that you just peripherally smell someone's perfume who walks past you and you have this unbelievably loving memory of your grandmother. So the two, there's sort of two sides of the same coin, but the notion that you could retrain your brain, which again, in trauma, we know so much about sort of how your brain codes information and how it pairs down information and how it shifts over time. I love hearing that science has figured out how to focus in on retraining the brain so that it can use its memory, its sense memory of smell in order to invite you back into the experience of smell. I mean, that is just like the coolest thing I've ever heard. And I imagine it's, you know, like any physical therapy where you're trying to heal something really, really difficult, but probably an important therapy and treatment. And part of what you're describing, which is relatable to the field of trauma. And I think in grief and loss in general, is that, you know, there's the science of how much do we really know about this? And then people's lived experience, we're going to leave the science up to the scientists, but we need to support the lived experience with it at the same time. So it's being able to give the education. Here's what we know about this. I love the description of the foreign country moving to a foreign country. Cause that's actually one, I, I don't know why I use Portuguese, but I always say it's like, I woke up in the morning and I, you know, essentially was kidnapped and found myself in a country that speaks Portuguese. Like I know a little bit of Spanish. I know a lot of French, but I do not speak Portuguese, but I'm pretty, like I'm cl- a native Portuguese speaker in terms of grief would say I am well versed at this time. And there's, one of the things I ask grievers all the time is like, what is your favorite metaphor? Because everybody has one, whether it's you put on a coat or you are in a foreign country or you're on a bus, but the importance of it is that it becomes something that people have to learn to carry over time. That there's the unbelievable overwhelm of the shock of the event, right? And so that's true in grief. Like you wake up and your beloved is dead, And so there's the central nervous system and the functioning that has to happen just to keep you alive. Most people say, I don't think I can get through this. 99.7% of people do live through traumatic losses. No one thinks they can. Everybody does. And so something is the difference in between the two. And what I know is saying to somebody, I really believe you're going to live through this. Let me tell you about all the people that I know who lived through it. Let me tell you how I lived through it does not work. That's not what people want to hear. They will tell you to F off. What what works is to say, I believe you can live through this. I totally understand. It doesn't feel like you will. I get that. I'm with you. If you don't, I'll bring over donuts but like, I think you're going to grow the capacity. That's that's the concept behind mm-hmm. grief and loss that I write about. And that I'm trying to infuse, which is really any loss, like a coach, like, nope, you know what? I think you can run faster without pressure and without saying, I'm going to kick you off the team if you don't, but I really believe you can. We are growing our abilities to be grievers in a world that doesn't show us how to do it, really. We say, take it into your therapist's, do your little magic in there, and then come back out better formed and more prepared for the world out here. There's 5 million new grievers on account of the losses of COVID. That's the estimate. 5 million, just in the United States. You know, we are going to have to change the way that we approach this. There's going to have to be, businesses are going to have to have leave. We're going to have to show up and have these conversations you know, at work and on the bus and in church in different ways, or people are going to get really sick. I mean, at a bare minimum, they're probably going to be, we're going to have a big explosion of addicts, people who don't know how to manage and so are using, you know, dissociative stuff. But what I generally say to clients, and it's not from my own experience, because actually I was a trauma therapist before I was traumatized. And being a trauma therapist did not stop me from needing to be, you know, hospitalized with overwhelming grief symptoms. I just believe that actually humans are able to suffer tremendous, unbelievable loss and still move on into life. It's just, there's a period of time where here's the loss and here's your life and you're going to grow into this. And what it feels like instead is only loss, and that's fine. I don't try to talk people out of that. Of course, this is only loss. What we discover is mm-hmm. it's also growth.
1: Do you think that resilience can be encouraged, that you can, that you can scoop people up and give them something that will help them be more resilient to their grieving in their grieving process?
0: It's a gorgeous question. And I don't love the word resilience. I know that scientists use it and believe it's measurable and they talk about it. In trauma work, what we look at is what did you come from and what kind of support did you have? What is your historical pattern? Because everything that we do in life is based on past experiences. I understand what this water is going to taste like because I've tasted water before. So when we're looking at things like resilience, I actually think that we're looking at how well-trained Was your system not necessarily your body because we can look at a three year old and say that they're resilient? But I actually think what we're talking about is like the culture of the support of the system around you so that you could feel confident that you will get through it. So it's like a mix between the two. I do know that when I talk to clients, they're often able to pinpoint a you know across their lives moments of real pain and no way to interpret that in a way that made them feel like there could be relief or support or change. Trauma therapists believe at the heart of trauma, you know, there is absolutely bio social stuff that gets handed down over time. Nobody disputes that, but at the heart Mm -hmm. of trauma is the idea that a child or a person went through something their system began to make meaning. They were in a car accident. They started to say, oh my gosh, well, I'm never going to get in a car again. There was an intervention of some kind, enough support so that I didn't limit the rest of my life based on the bad thing that happened. That I think is part of what you're describing, which is this terrible thing that people are trying to adjust to, which I'm not going to equate it to the death of a loved one, but that's not to say that somebody might not experience it as as that profound, being able to get from the moment that you discover this enormous, devastating experience of loss and the moment that you believe that you will be able to live with it. And part of Mm -hmm. what you're describing with losing your scent, part of what I know is that's not the same as everybody's bringing you casseroles because your you know partner died in a car accident it's not the same as you your leg was amputated and everyone can see it i mean you would look physically the same from tuesday to wednesday you might as you described start having increasing depressive symptoms but you know we miss depression all day long as well that unless you're really you know, not getting out of bed and dysregulated in a way that draws attention to you. There are so many, I mean, I work with clients that you wouldn't know it to look at her, but she's battling, battling,
1: battling. Right. You know, one of the the things that always jumps out at me is that when we think about things that we would do to help ourselves when we're feeling bad, to self-soothe, Yeah. You know, what are those things? I'd I'd like to place a bet on the things that you're thinking of right now having something to do with smell, either a donut or a nice hot bath with bubbles in it or a hug from your partner. All of those things have a very powerful smell component. Absolutely. And, you know, when we think about grieving and that process and then the flip side of, of grief being comfort, you know, there is, that's sort of the opposite. And, and so many of those comfort signals have to do with smell. So you can imagine that comforting someone who has lost their sense of smell is just a very, very difficult thing to do. It's such an interesting
0: concept to me, because, again, what we understand is that we, organize our understanding of ourselves in our body based on your five senses. All of the five senses are literally like orienting me in space and time. You've mentioned it a couple of times, the smell of your partner, you know, that smell becomes something that you take in, but you actually stop smelling it, don't you? So like, you know, people can't smell their own body odor generally, or their own breath. doesn't mean that odor isn't there. And so again, like- in which you take in those things. It's just fascinating to hear you say it. Of course, you would be losing it. And, and,
1: and think, think about that <clears throat> magic moment when you stand in front of the closet of a person that you loved who has died. I mean, yeah,
0: I took all my mom's perfumes. She wore different perfumes at different periods in her life and kept the bottles because they were very beautiful they're a mental health treatment for me. I don't use them very often. My dad wore Ralph Lauren polo cologne in a green bottle for most of the eighties and into the early nineties. And it's the same experience. I mean, I don't use it necessarily as a, as a bomb. Sometimes I use it and I talk about this in my work, you know, to, to help me with feeling bad. It's like almost, I want to go deeper into feeling bad. And so I'll bring out the smell, but it's evocative in a way that I can't, imagine, A, not having, and B, there's no replication for it. I probably could sort of conjure up some concept of the smell in my mind because it, it it's so relevant, but, but boy, it would be a lot to, to live without. And again, it's a currency, right? It's a conversation when you say to somebody, my mother's kitchen smelled like bread, or I mean, I was just with my son and we were outside and there's the whole neighborhood is getting their grass cut today and just what that does. But, but part of what I was going to say about this is we also know when you were talking about depression, you know, we know a lot about the central nervous system and what regulates it. So, you know, the, the concept of something that is a really soothing smell to you, it, it conjures back to a time where you felt calm or that you you know, felt well and supported and loved, you know, that's that you take that in and it will regulate your whole system in a way that, it reminds you to take a deep breath It will make you feel relaxed in your body. I mean, I, I literally can't imagine what it would be like to be without your sense of smell, but I can certainly imagine that your Facebook groups must be filled with people trying to use words and words will likely fail us, right? Trying That's to right. use words to describe the loss of something. I mean, we, we don't have any
1: language that would help us oh. be seen and known in that way. The loss is indescribable. And you know, I've 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 been in this gig now for nine years, and I still don't have an adequate way of explaining it. <clears throat> so I would like to say to anyone who is listening today who has experienced smell loss, or maybe they've got a family member or even a child, we've got a lot of that now as well. Do please come to absent.org where you will be directed to all of our different platforms. We've got something a little bit different on all of them we have a wonderful youtube channel with webinars our webinar series which has been done with international leaders in the field of smell dysfunction and that covers everything from the latest research to well-being depression everything really we have the absent network which is on the mighty networks platform where we run courses We have, the website is a sort of an encyclopedia with all of the information that we've got there, including links to reading lists. So anyone uh, that would uh, like more information should please join us. We also sell smell training kits on a nonprofit basis. That is to say, all the money that comes in from that goes into supporting Absent. And we've been um, quite successful with that. And we are, uh, we've got new products as well. So anyone that buys something from the absence store knows that they are supporting people like themselves who may not be able to to afford anything. So that's a good thing as well. And we are forging ahead with some original research. I've got about four papers now on preprint servers, more coming soon. So we really are making a dent, especially in this terrible thing called parosmia, which makes everything smell Terrible. Like sewage. I won't use the real word.
0: I'm, I'm, I know people must be so grateful for the work that you've done. It must be, it must feel very rewarding, even though we're of course not happy that people need it.
1: I'd also like to say that for anyone who is in the mental health field, who has either lost their sense of smell or has a particular interest in this, we would love to hear from you because we're trying to build a team and develop resources for people who really feel that their mental health needs um, some assistance within the context of smell loss. We'd, We'd love to hear from anyone like that.
0: Great. So everybody heard that. If you are in the mental health field and can help out with your own qualitative descriptions, definitely get in touch.
1: I'd like to thank you, Megan, because, you know, without putting our voice out on other platforms, you know, we can't help as many people. So the more people that hear about this, that can come to us and get help, that really is what we're here for. And it's wonderful if we can do that. So I'd like to thank you for giving me this opportunity.
0: Thank you so much for reaching out. This was a fascinating conversation. I know we're going to stay in touch and have more to say to each other. Good luck with all your research and all your work as it's expanding and we'll be in touch. Bye-bye.